Well, listen, we live in the greatest city in the world, don't we? Honestly. We really do. I, I, my wife and I, Amy, we moved here uh, three years ago. Can you believe that? Three years has gone by like that. Three years ago, September 13th, 2013. And, and we knew from day one that we would fall in love with you people. I mean, who doesn't fall in love with you people? You people are great people. So we had come here for interviews a couple of times and shake hands and kiss babies and give people hugs. And we knew right away we were going to love this church. And we do. We've absolutely fallen in love with this church. I, I was pleasantly surprised, I'm surprised, but pleasantly surprised as to how much we would love this great city of Toronto. And when I say the city, I mean the greater Toronto area. I mean Ajax out to Mississauga, all right? I mean downtown core all the way up to where I live in cottage country. All of that is the city. Actually, we live in Aurora, just south of cottage country, by the way. That's, that's where we're, we're at. So we love this city, the art here, the culture here, the music here, professional sports here, the Toronto FC and the Argos and the Jays and the Raptors. <laughs> so good. So good. Did I miss one? The, the leaves? Is it the leaves? Listen, leaves is plural of leaf, not leafs. Someone made a joke uh, this weekend at my house. Montreal has the haves and we have the have-nots. So, um, no, we love it here. We love it here. We, we love it here because Toronto is the second most multi-ethnic city in the world. Do you know that? Used to be number one. It's now number two. You know what number one is? Markham. Markham is now number one. Most multi-ethnic city in the world. At least the demographics I just read, the statistics I just read. And, and many of you know this, but Amy and I have a black daughter. Uh, we adopted Kaya a couple years ago. Wonderful. She brings so much joy to our family. But we come from a city, Scottsdale, Arizona, that is pretty uh, kind of homogenous, pretty unilateral when it comes to it's a cultural monolith. Everybody looks like me there. So to move to a city where we are a transracial family, have more than one race in our family, to move to the most multi-ethnic city in the world, even where everybody is getting along for the most part. I mean, I don't know if you've been watching this, but um, in the U.S., there's a little bit of racial tension going on right now. Have you heard about the racial tension in the U.S.? Have you, do you watch the news? And some of you come from countries where there's a whole lot more than just racial tension going on, isn't there? It's escalated into warfare at this point in some of the countries that you're from. And here we come to a place where we've got more cultures and more nationalities and more ethnicities than any city in the world. And for the most part, people get along, except when you're trying to park at a Leafs game. And then people start to get a little chippy, you know what I mean, a little dodgy. How many of you are from somewhere, you're born somewhere other than Toronto? Other than Toronto, shoot your hand up, wow. Wow, me too. I was born in Hobbs, America, Hobbs, Hobbs New Mexico, baby. It's the middle of nowhere. You haven't heard of it because you haven't heard of it. So, and, and, you know, by some stroke of luck or by the grace of God or even on purpose, we've all ended up in what I believe to be the greatest city in the world. Did you know that each year in Toronto, 12,500 children enter the foster care system? Think about that now. 12,500 children every year enter foster care in Toronto. Did you know that every year there are 40,000 abortions in the greater Toronto area, give or take? Now, listen, I'm, I'm a pro-life guy. I, I, I've got no shame in that. I'm, I'm real straightforward. I'm a pro-life guy. You might not be pro-life. You might uh, support a woman's right to choose. And we disagree on that. But, but here's, I think, what we can all agree on. Now, watch this. Here's what we can all agree on. More often than not, these are young moms, single moms, 
who are under-resourced and feel like this is the only option they have. So I don't, no matter what kind of side of that argument you land on, I think we can all agree we'd like a little bit less of that, no matter what side of that argument you land on. Do you know that every year in Toronto, there are, there are a thousand suicides? Do you know that? A thousand people that get to a point where they, 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 they feel like the only option they have is to take their own life because they're despairing so much. Do you know that there's 146,000 children living in Toronto, or living in poverty in the greater Toronto area? That's enough to fill the Air Canada Center every night for seven nights. 146,000 children living in poverty. You know, there are 250,000 youth that are struggling with mental illness. 250,000 children between the ages of 13 and 18 struggling with mental illness. Now watch this. Only 75,000 of them will ever get treatment and help. So you're talking about 175,000 kids that struggle with issues that I've struggled with in my own life, clinical depression, clinical anxiety, bipolar disorder, whatever else, that are living in a world where their brain doesn't function right and their emotions don't function right and they don't see the world quite right and they know it's not quite right but they just don't understand how to do anything about it and there's 175,000 of them out there in the greater Toronto area that are confused and hopeless because they're struggling with mental illness, such as the same stuff I've struggled with. You know, watch this one. This will blow your mind. There are 14,000 prostitutes in the greater Toronto area. We, we had a gal in our office this week. It, it was interesting. She said, only that many? Isn't there more than that? This is, this is the number of people that would admit that they're a prostitute. So that's the only way you can count prostitutes is ask, are you a prostitute? 14,000 people said yes. So there are far more than that. Now watch this. 80% of those began as children. 80% of those 14,000 entered the sex trade industry as a child. And this is really this, just the tip of the iceberg. Think about all the people in our great city that are struggling with the English language. And so they're struggling to get the resources that they need to feed their family. Think about the divorce rate in the greater Toronto area. Has it gone up or down lately? Think about the dysfunction of families in the greater Toronto area. Think about all of what's kind of going on in terms of addiction. This is really the tip of the iceberg when it comes to statistics. This great city has a great need, no doubt about it. Whether we like it or not, this is the city that we live in. This is the city that, that we live in. We live in the greatest city in the world, my humble opinion, greatest city in the world. But our city is broken. Our city is dysfunctional. Our city is hurting. And those statistics that I just shared with you, and far more than that, are just the symptoms. Just like cancer inside, you know, does things on the outside of you. These are just the symptoms. Those statistics are just the symptoms. At the core is a brokenness and a loneliness and a godlessness and a, as C.S. Lewis would say, a God-shaped hole in the heart of individuals in our city. And so if we put all those statistics up there together and we all looked at them together, no matter what background you come from, you could come from any country in the world, you could have been raised in any faith system in the world, if you're Muslim, if you're Baha'i, if you're Hindi, if you're Christian, if you're Jewish, no matter what you come from, if you're you know, nothing at all, agnostic or atheist, you would look up there at those statistics with me and we could all agree, I think, that you know what, kind of what I hear about this Jesus guy I've read some stuff about him. I've heard some people talk to him. I think that those statistics and what Jesus taught don't quite match up all that well, do they? Like, again, no matter what background you come from, it's like, 
Did Jesus say, you know what, 33 years I'm going to be here on the planet. If there are just more prostitutes when I leave the planet than there is now, I would have counted myself a success. If there are just more children in poverty when I leave the planet, if there are just more youth struggling with mental illness and not getting help when I leave the planet, then I would consider myself a success. Absolutely not. We know that about Jesus. We know this is not his design. We know this is not his plan. We know that those symptoms don't reflect the heart of God. So as a body of believers, as a group of Christ followers, as Bayview Glen Church, we are now faced with a very critical question, and it's simply this. How do we respond? to the city. If that is indeed the city that we live in and that's what's going on and at the root of it is a brokenness and a God-shaped hole, how do we respond to the city? We have to ask ourselves this question and we have to wrestle with it. Now watch, here's the great news. The great news is that today, this moment, on Bayview and Steeles at 11.35 is not the first time that God's people have asked themselves this question. I'm so glad that we've got a model to follow and a group of people we can look to and say, wow, when you were in a pagan city, when you were in a godless city, when you were in a city that was struggling with, trust me, far more than the greater Toronto area is struggling with, what did you do? What did you do wrong that we can learn from? What did you do right that we can learn from? The Bible actually records a, some history and some knowledge about this group of people that were faced with the exact same question that we're faced with. How do we respond to the city? You see, at the end of the 7th century B.C., at the beginning of the 6th century, right around there, this is before Jesus came around. So remember, before Jesus, we count down. 7th century, 6th, 5th, 4th, 3rd, 2, 1, Jesus, and then we start to count up. Lots of fun, right? So 7th century, end of the 7th century B.C., right about the beginning of the 6th century, the people of God started to make some bad choices. They've been making bad choices for a little while, but God you know, kind of began to intervene at this point. And up to that point, God's people, his children, the nation of Israel, had been kind of deviating from God's plan. They've been rejecting God's plan. They've been rejecting God's presence, rejecting God's grace. And what that looked like was rejecting his commandments. And God does what any good dad would do. God says, please don't reject my commandments. They're for you. I didn't, I didn't make them arbitrarily. Like, I didn't put them at there so, you know, just so you could break them. And I should go, ha, 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 told you so. That's not how that works. I put them in there for you. So when I say, if you're going to eat a goat, cook it like this, not like this. That's not an arbitrary command. What I'm telling you is, if you cook the goat like this, you're going to eat it and die. Let's not do that. Let's avoid that. So cook the goat like this. Such is the case with all of God's commands. They're gracious commands. They're life-giving commands. They're for your good and for his glory. And the nation of Israel said, I don't want any part of that. And so God began to call the nation of Israel back to him, call his children back to him, call his people back to him, just like I do when my two-year-old is running wild at the Markham Children's Festival yesterday. Did, you, did anybody go to this thing? Okay, good. But there were 30,000 people there, I guarantee. It was like wading through humanity. And my kids run around doing everything and stealing people's snacks. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's not your snack. And then she, we put her on the train and she hit some kid on the train. 
ooh. And the kid goes, oh. I'm like, yeah, that's my kid. Slap. Just like that, okay? So the whole time I'm saying to Kaya, please don't disobey daddy. Daddy has good commands for you. Daddy has good rules for you. Because if you grow up and you hit people, that's not going to go well for you. So let's learn now not to hit people. So finally, what does a good dad say to his daughter when the daughter continues to disobey? When we get home, daddy's going to discipline you. That's what that means. And I say it with a smile, even though I'm crying on the inside. And God says to the nation of Israel, you're my kids, you're my children, you're my people, and I've begged you to obey what I had to say to you that's for your good, and you keep rejecting me. So, at the end of the 7th century, right at the beginning of the 6th century, daddy's going to discipline you. And the way that God chose to do that, the vehicle that God chose to do that is called the Babylonian Empire. So the Babylonian Empire came in and conquered the nation of Israel and took a bunch of God's children into captivity, into exile, and relocated them into the capital city of Babylon. So now get this. Watch now. Watch. God's people are living in a godless city. God's people are living in a broken environment. If you were to list the statistics from Babylon... Trust me, we wouldn't live up to how pagan that city was. I mean, that has become kind of a representation of what it means to be pagan, Babylon. And this is where God's people are living. So they are faced with this question, how do we respond to the city? They made some good decisions. They made some bad decisions. We're going to learn from them this morning. You ready? We with you? We, we, you with me? We with you. I'm with you. You're with me. We're all here together. Okay. Jeremiah 29. Open your Bibles if you would. Jeremiah 29. Hope you have your Bibles with you. If not, look on with a friend. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. We're going to read about God's people's response to the city. Look what Jeremiah writes. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. He writes this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem now, he's still in God's capital city in Jerusalem in the, uh, in the nation of Israel, to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Two things I want you to see. I'm going to make a quick comment on one and then we're going to talk about the other. The quick comment on one is this. He's talking about the exiles living in Babylon. Jeremiah firmly locates the exiles of God in the city of Babylon. He says, remember, you're not living here anymore in Jerusalem. You're living in Babylon. You're living in a different context, in a different culture, in a different city, a city that's rejected God. And this is God's discipline, but he's got a purpose for you there. But I want you to understand you're in Babylon. He's going to mention it two more times in three verses just to continue to remind them. You live in Babylon. Second thing I want you to see is this. That Nebuchadnezzar is writing to the elders, the priests, and the prophets. What happened was, Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem at the time. And he hears there's a delegation going from Jerusalem to the city of Babylon. And he goes, great. 
I can get in contact with these folks. I can encourage and exhort these folks because I've heard about some of the ways that they're responding to the city. They've asked that question, how do we respond to the city? And they've not done a great job. So I'm going to write a letter of exhortation and I'm going to send it with this delegation. But look who's in the city of Babylon, the elders, the priests, and the prophets. Look who else. Verse 2, keep reading. It says, this was after King Jeconiah, so the king of Israel and the queen mother, his mom, Could you imagine like if you were king in Israel and your mom was around all the time? That was a bad king decision all the time. This is what I picture King Jeconiah. This is my inner monologue going on. Okay, look who else is going uh, in, in captivity here. The eunuchs, that's basically the secret service or the RCMP for the king. The officials of Judah, those are the leaders and the politicians. Those are leading the entire country and nation of Israel. The craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. All of these people are in exile. So watch this. Watch what King Nebuchadnezzar does because he's smart. When he conquers the nation of Israel, instead of taking all of God's people into captivity, he just takes the best of God's people into captivity. He takes the leaders, the elders, the priests, the prophets. He takes the metal workers and the craftsmen. Oh, you're the king? You're coming with me. Oh, you're his mom? You're definitely coming with me. He takes all of the best. So God's best people are now relocated from the city that they know into a godless, broken, dysfunctional situation. And they're faced with the same question. How do we respond to the city? Look what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, verse 3. It says, The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the king of Shaphan, and, or the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the king of, or the son of Hilkiah. Man, these, these names are always rough for me. Whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Again, Jeremiah is reminding them, you're in Babylon, you're in Babylon, you're in Babylon. I want you to see my exhortation. I want you to see my encouragement. I want you to see God's commands for you in this time and place through those eyes. You're in Babylon. You're exiled. You're in a different place. You're in Babylon. And up to this point, here's the thing. Up to this point, the nation of Israel, who were the the people, the group of people that were in exile in Babylon, had already answered this question a number of times. How are we going to respond to the city? They'd already answered this question a couple times. And typically in the Old Testament, if you don't know how prophecy works, typically a prophet is not like a future teller. Typically a prophet is not like, you know, Torah cards on the table and a crystal ball and ooh, that's not how that works. More often than not, a prophet comes along and says, remember what God said, do it. And then he said this, and you should do that too. And remember what God said, do it. That's the vast majority of the time. They're truth tellers, not future tellers. There's a little bit of time where a prophet would go, and if you don't, this is going to happen. And they would kind of tell the future a little bit. But for the most part, they were truth tellers. So when Jeremiah enters the picture and he writes to the exiles in Babylon, what he's about to do is say to them, you've been responding to this city any number of ways, and none of those ways are good. So what I'm telling you is you need to repent and change. You need to say, man, we, we've not responded well, and so we're going to change and respond in the way that you're about to exhort us, encourage us to respond. So our question is, well, how have they been responding? Here they are in exile, in a godless culture, in a broken system, in a dysfunctional city, God's leaders, the cream of the crop. How had they been responding to the city that they were living in? Well, one way they were responding is they, they had abandoned the city. They had abandoned the city. And here's what I mean by abandoned. They didn't leave. Why? Because they can't. They're in captivity. That's what it means to be a captive. You can't leave. 
But what they were doing was they were so disengaging from culture and so withdrawing from the people around them, it was as if, as if they weren't even there. They weren't building houses. They weren't planting crops. They weren't getting married or having children. They weren't doing anything. We're only going to be here for a little bit of time, so we're not even going to talk to you. We're not even going to engage in the culture. We're not even going to engage in the city. In the city, and they kind of did these little God people groups and little cliques and cohorts, and they closed themselves off, and they became insulated and insular, and they didn't talk to anyone, and they just waited for God to get them out. They abandoned the city. And as a result, what happened is they began to criticize the city. The Bible tells us, and even history tells us, that the nation of Israel, especially those in exile, began to get arrogant and say, oh, we're God's people, we're special, we're chosen, and you guys are all just a bunch of addicts and hookers. And they began to criticize the city around them. They also began to copy the city, which is an interesting tactic to me. The Bible tells us, and again, history tells us, that it was almost like a buffet line for the nation of Israel. They would go through Babylonian culture, and they would go, I kind of like a little bit of that, and I kind of like a little bit of that. That I don't like, but I'll take a little bit of that. I'll take a little bit of that, and we'll just call it God. We'll just call it monotheism. We'll just call it the way that God instructed us to do it. We, and we just, we just borrow stuff and copy it, but we're not actually creating anything, and we're not actually living in the way that God instructed us to live. We're just copying the culture around us. The fourth way that they decided to respond to the city around them was they assimilated, or I would call it they hid in the city. The nation of Israel, these people of God that are supposed to be the voice of God and God's grace to the nations and supposed to bring the good news of, of God's provision and plan for redemption to everybody around them just kind of shut up and shut down. They totally assimilated. They just, they just became part of Babylonian culture. You wouldn't even be able to tear, tell them apart. So much so, now watch this, this is fascinating. So much so that when God finally provided a way for them to get out, a bunch of them said, you know, nah. Ezra, the prophet Ezra actually tells us that. They, these guys said, you know what, we kind of like it here. It's fun here. We've assimilated so much. We've just become a part of this culture. We don't even stand out anymore. It's actually pretty good here. We don't want to go back home. Now, this is fascinating to me because God's people 2,700 years ago were faced with this question, how do we respond to the city? And they made some bad choices. and They weren't responding well. You and I are faced with the exact same question today. We're living in a city that doesn't match up with kingdom values. We know that. We just saw statistics that prove that. So you and I are faced with the exact same question. How do we respond to the city? And check this out. We're not that creative in our responses, are we? Because we're doing exactly what the nation of Israel did 2,700 years ago. Watch this. We begin to abandon the city. We begin to abandon the city. We, we create Christian clubs and, and Christian cliques, and we, and we do Christian education, and we do a whole lot more Bible studies. How many Bible studies can I get in in a week? And what we do is we tell ourselves that we're godly and that we're following Jesus and we're on mission for him. All the while, being in a Bible study is just an excuse to abandon the city because engaging in the city is too hard. 
Having friends that disagree with you is too hard. Having friends that have a different set of values than you is too hard. And being a transformative agent of God's grace is too hard. So we just fill our calendar up with church stuff so we can abandon the city. And we retreat into Bible studies, Christian clubs, Christian clubs, Christian schools, Christian programs. We buy our Christian t-shirts and our Christian shoes. We don't even eat pagan gum anymore. We have testaments. Have you heard of testaments? This is a real thing. Don't laugh. This is a real thing. You can go to a Christian bookstore, and you don't have to buy one of them godless Altoids anymore. You can get a testament. Stupid, 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 stupid. If you invented testaments, I'm sorry. And look, here's the thing. This has never been a measure of spiritual maturity, ever. How many Christian things you do, how many Bible studies you go to. And some of you are thinking, man, I just, but Luke, we need to know more of the word. We need to know more of the word. We need to understand it. I was talking to my friend Dave about this actually over lunch on Thursday. Uh, We need to know more of the word. We need to understand the word. But if you know the word and understand the word and you don't do the word, do you know the Bible actually makes fun of people like that? Not kidding. Not kidding. And you're like, the Bible doesn't make fun of people. Yes, it does. Watch. James. You put that up there, Micaiah, would you? Do you have that James verse? Yeah. Okay, go back one. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's the commandment. Don't just understand it, listen to it, read it, meet in a little Bible study, but do it. I heard this Francis Chan sermon one time. He said, if I told my daughter to clean her room, this is eight years old, 10 years old at the time, told my daughter to clean her room, and then she came back to me 24 hours later and she said, Dad, I did it. Oh, you cleaned your room? No, no, but I memorized what you said. I did. And then I called my friends, and we had a little small group, and we talked about what it might look like if we cleaned our room. And, and I can also tell you in the original Greek, your commandment to clean my room, but I have not cleaned my room. What would I say as a father? Well, that's the same thing that James would say to the church. Keep going, Micaiah. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and is not a doer, here's where the Bible makes fun of us. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. This is what we're like if we understand the word but don't do it. And you look up there and you're like, well, that's not, the Bible's not making fun. Yes, 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 the Bible is making fun. Using hyperbole, using uh, extended language, using, again, hyperbole to say, look, be a doer of the word. You cannot retreat from the city. You cannot disengage from the city. You cannot abandon the city. Listen to what the Bible says and then do it. If I hear one more Christian tell me how spiritually mature they are because of all the Bible studies they're in, I am going to spit. And then what happens is, sorry, I'm, like I'm getting on a soapbox here and I get it, but I'm just gonna, we're just going to talk and be frank here. Then here's what we do to make ourselves feel better. Watch, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm telling you this is what we do. Here's what we do to make ourselves feel better. We look at each other and we say this. You know what, Luke? The culture has just abandoned the church. They really have. I mean, the, the, the millennials and the Gen Xs, you know, p- people are just abandoning the church all over. Look at your home country of the U.S. Actually, you might have a point there, but that's beside the point. The culture is abandoning the church. Look at me now. Look at me. And this might be hard for some of you to hear because I want to talk frankly with you. The culture did not abandon us. We abandoned the culture. When we closed off 
and stop talking to anyone who isn't a Christian, when we stop interacting with people who don't share our points of view, when we said, you know what, I'm not going to have gay friends anymore. I'm not going to talk to my neighbor who's an addict. I'm going to retreat. I'm going to abandon. And we blame it on the culture, and all the while it's our fault. And we think about, we we tell ourselves these things we can feel better about ourselves. And you know what it leads to? It leads to criticizing the culture is what it leads to. We abandon, then we criticize, and we name call. And we say stuff like, what a bunch of pagans, or what a bunch of hookers, or what a bunch of addicts, or what a bunch of godless people. They have no idea what they're doing. They've abandoned the church, and they've abandoned God, and they've abandoned And we begin to criticize the city again, all the while making ourselves feel better. But all the things that we just talked about in terms of statistics, those are just symptoms of a core problem. We're not addressing a core problem, and we're criticizing people and getting angry at them and poking fun at them because they exhibit symptoms of not having Jesus in their life. Like, think about if we did that in any other area of life, if we just came in and addressed symptoms and didn't get to the core of the problem, think about how that typically goes. My mom had cancer 15 years ago. The cancer would make my mom feel tired. What if I came to my mom and said, you know what, you ought to get a little more sleep. You know, you conk out sometimes at family stuff, and you're a little tired at dinner, and, you know, we kind of want to hang out and watch TV or whatever afterwards, and you always want to go to bed. You really should get more sleep. And by the way, here's a Red Bull. And I began to criticize my mom for the symptoms of the problem. That's not just destructive, right? Because now I'm not dealing with the cancer. I'm dealing with the symptoms of the cancer. And we'll just let the cancer run ravage in her body and just take her home to be with the Lord. That's what happens if you only deal with the symptoms and don't get to the core. The other thing that it is 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 terrifically insulting, isn't it? Someone's got cancer and they get fatigued and you give them a Red Bull to deal with the symptoms? It's the same thing we do with our culture, though. The culture doesn't have Jesus. The culture has a deep need, and we come in and we say, you know what, you really ought to be in church more. And we're critical of people's decisions. That doesn't help anybody. We do just exactly the same thing that the nation of Israel did. Exactly the same thing. Or we begin to copy the culture. We begin to copy the culture. We begin to copy the city. We, we take things from the city, and we take things from the culture, and we kind of sew them together a little bit, and we stamp a cross on it, and we call it good. And we say, man, this is a Christian thing. And instead of creating art ourselves and creating dance ourselves and creating music ourselves and doing what God called us to do, which is be creative. Why? Because we're made in his image. We pick and choose things from the culture, and then we make a little tweak and a little change of it, and we call it Christian, and yeah, we're all good. Now, some of you don't believe me, so... I want to prove it to you. In the 90s, I was uh, a youth group guy. I went to church a lot. I, did, I played soccer and did other things and you know, tried to attend class here and there. But for the most part, uh, I spent a lot of time in youth group. How many of you grew up in youth group, grew up in church, kind of like I did? Okay, good. few of you. That's great. All right. So here's what happened in the 90s. I was a big fan of all kinds of music. I grew up on Led Zeppelin and ACDC. I grew up on Jimmy Buffett and James Taylor. Uh, and I, in the 90s, I began to like gangster rap. Now, don't you judge me. Don't you judge me. This was pre-Jesus and then post-Jesus. But that's beside the point. The point is, point is, I started to like gangster rap. So I had a youth leader tell me one time, man, Luke, what kind of music do you listen to? I listen to Ice Cube, I listen to Dre, I listen to Snoop. I like that kind of stuff, you know? And he said, man, you know who you should really get into? DC Talk. Now, If you do not know who DC Talk is, that's not funny. If you know who DC Talk is, that's the funniest thing you've ever heard in your life. 
because it was a Christian rap band that stood for decent Christian talk. And it might have been decent Christian talk, but it certainly was not decent music by any stretch of the imagination. Or people would tell me, you like James Taylor, you should get into Stephen Curtis Chapman. Now look, I like Stephen Curtis Chapman as much as the next guy. He is no James Taylor, okay? I'll just tell you that right now. And instead of creating art and creating music and creating things, we were just picking out the scraps of pop culture and sewing things on it and trying to be something we weren't as a church. I read a GQ article years ago, about 10, 15 years ago, a guy who grew up Jewish and had chosen agnosticism and even atheism um, as, a, as an adult. So he was not affiliated with any religious group. And he wrote an article about the Christian culture. And he made fun of Christianese and the Christian subculture and all the language we use and all the goofy shirts that we buy and testaments and all that good kind of stuff. And at the end of the article, it was fantastic. He said, look, Church of God, Jesus Church, that's us. He said, for the last 2,000 years, you guys have been the very definition of what it means to create great music. You guys have been the very definition of what it means to create great art. This great God of creativity that created everything around us that you believe in, made you in his own image, you don't need to copy anybody for anything. You do what God has put in your heart, and what will come out is a definition of culture. You don't have to copy the city. You don't have to be something you're not. So please, please, and this is an atheist, an agnostic saying this. Please, stop copying pop culture. There's nothing there to copy. You do what God has called you to do. Because when we don't do that, we get ourselves into a pickle. We get ourselves into a predicament. We cause ourselves problems. I have a buddy in uh, Arizona who will remain nameless this morning, but his name is Greg. And, um, and we were in college. We were living together uh, for a little while in college. I was 21, 22 years old. I get a phone call one day, and it's Greg on the other end of the line. And Greg says, Luke, I need you to take me to the hospital. And I'm going, well, that's odd. Um, for what reason am I taking you to the hospital? He says, I need stitches in my face. So what happened? He says, well, I have a cut on my face, and I need stitches. And he's being deliberately vague. Like, I understand what's happening here. So I start to go, Greg, I'm not taking you to the hospital until you tell me what happened to your face. And he says, and I quote, I hit myself in the face with a gardening hoe. And I start to imagine, how does one hit oneself in one's face with a gardening hoe? And so I ask Greg, Greg, how did you hit yourself in the face with a gardening hoe? And I kid you not, this is what I hear on the other end of the phone. I was pretending to be Donatello from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> this is a 22-year-old man, by the way. Not eight. And so I was practicing my bow staff skills in the backyard with our hoe. And I hit myself in the face with it. I said, Greg, I'll be there shortly, and we're going to get your face stitched up. See, here's what happens. When we try to be something we're not, we usually do pretty permanent damage. Church, it works the same for us too. When we look at pop culture and we say, we want to be like that, we want to do that, we want to grab pieces of that, sew it together, stamp a cross on it, and call it good. That's not the biblical model for responding to the city that we live in. It's just not. And assimilation is certainly not uh, the, the solution either. Hiding in the city is certainly not the solution either. This is why Jesus says, be salty. You're salt. Be salty. Be a preservative. Be a seasoning. He says, 
Who lights a lamp? That's silly. Who lights a lamp and then covers it? No, you uncover it so it shows light to the whole house. So if you completely assimilate into culture and hide in the culture and you don't stand out in any way, if the salt loses its saltiness, as Jesus would say, how can it be made salty again? Or if you light a lamp and just hide it, you hide the flame, it doesn't do anybody any good. You've got to stand out for your character, for your integrity the ways that Jesus is changing you on a regular basis. So Jeremiah comes along to these exiles, and he says the same thing to them as he would to us. When you admit, when you see, when God reveals to you that you have not been responding to the city or not been responding, behaving, heart posture, as he has instructed us to do, here's what we do. We repent. We repent. And listen, this repentance thing is a, is, a, is a churchy word. And I think a lot of times we look at repentance like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I haven't been responding to the city and the culture around me in, in, a, in a helpful way. I've been abandoning the city. I've been criticizing it. I've been copying it. I've been totally assimilating in it. Nobody even knows I'm a Christian. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to feel really guilty today. Lucas, you did a great job making me feel guilty I am poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked. Everybody hates me. Nobody likes me. I am going to go eat a worm. Can I just, can I just, two things. Eating a worm is not biblical, number one. And that type of, of emotion and that type of heart posture when we see our sin, do you understand that that's not a biblical heart posture either? I'm serious. It really isn't. This is why Paul in the New Testament comes along and he says, look, there's two types of sorrow. There's two types of guilt. There's two types of regret. There's the regret and sorrow that just cripples you and makes you think, I, I'm, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go eat a worm. And, and you don't do anything about it. So that's not the kind of sorrow we want, us to, we want to experience. That's worldly sorrow is what Paul calls it. Because we want to experience godly sorrow. And godly sorrow moves us to action. Godly sorrow says, wow, I haven't been responding to the city and culture around me in the way that God has instructed me. I'm going to change, and God's going to help me. Isn't that exciting? God, I'm sorry for, for either not knowing that or knowing that but not doing that or forgetting or deviating from that at times. So let's, let's just make a correction, God. You and me this morning, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace that saves me and forgives me. Thank you for your grace that now changes me and sanctifies me. That's a different heart posture, isn't it? It's a different heart posture. This is not about guilt and shame and for us to walk out here with a heavy load on our shoulders and go, oh, man, I've not responded to the city in the way. Oh, what a, what a scalawag I am. No. It's for us to walk out and go, Man, Jeremiah, you're right. You're right. I need to change. I need to change. And I'm grateful for a God who's going to walk along with me and do the changing in me from the inside out. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. I'm going to invite you to repent and to make that commitment with me today. We're going to get to, we're going to conclude with Jeremiah's instructions. We'll get there. But before we get there, I want you to look up here on the screen. Micaiah, go back one side if you would. Or go back to the, the there you go. All of us tend to lean into one of these responses, and these are all unbiblical responses. These are all responses that the nation of Israel tried 2,700 years ago, and none of them are, match up with the heart of God. None of them match up with the heart of Jesus, and all of us lean one way or the other. 
we don't always do a great job of doing what God says to do, and we lean into abandoning the city and just not caring and getting in our little Christian cliques and closing off and getting insular. We tend to criticize the city and the culture and the people around us, or we tend to copy it, or even we tend to assimilate in it. And nobody knows you're any different because you party just as much as your friends do, and you sleep around just like your friends do, and you cut corners in your business just like your friends do, and you've completely assimilated into culture. So my invitation to you this morning is to say, God, I'm leaning, I lean in one of those directions, and today I'm going to repent and change. Then Jeremiah is going to tell us, what do we change to? Pick it up in verse 4. Pick it up in verse 4. Jeremiah writes this. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Before we go any further, I want you to look at one thing here. Why are God's best people in Babylon? What does Nebuchadnezzar think? Nebuchadnezzar thinks it's because I conquered Israel and I took them here. But what is Jeremiah telling us? Why are God's best people in Babylon? Because God sent them there. You see it? Nebuchadnezzar's under the false impression it's an impression, but it's a false impression that I brought them to Babylon. And God's going, no, 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 no. That's my sovereign hand. I've got them there for a purpose. And not only did I send my people, I sent the best of the best. You think you're grabbing them to help your city get better, and you think you're grabbing them so that you can debilitate all the leaders and all the politicians and the king and the queen mother? Nope. It's because I wanted my best there. I have sent them into exile, and here's what I want you to do there. We're going to take two principles from these last couple of verses, and then we're going to conclude and be done. Jeremiah writes this to the people who are in exile. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So when Jeremiah says, stop doing these things, stop assimilating, stop hiding, stop criticizing, stop abandoning, stop copying... He's going to give us two principles for what we do now. How do we behave now? What's our heart, heart posture now? And the first is this. Watch, watch what Jeremiah does. This is a fantastic rhetorical strategy, by the way. This is so brilliant what Jeremiah does. Watch the time progression here. Watch. He says, build houses. How long does it take to build a house? How long does it take? Year, year, two years. Okay, so if build houses, great. So I'm here another two Years, year, two years is what these people are thinking to build a house and live in them. Oh, no, that's longer, isn't it? Oh, plant gardens. Ah, oh, that'll take me an afternoon. I can do that on a Saturday. And do what? Eat their produce. Oh, no. Now I've got to wait for them to grow and harvest them and eat. And I don't want to be here. Then watch what he says. Take wives. All right, I can do that. I can take a wife. That doesn't take that long. And people in this culture get married 13, 14 years old, give or take. All right. And then I'll be out of Babylon and back to my home city and have sons and daughters. Oh, no. Because that takes longer. You got to do the thing that gets you pregnant. And then you got to wait nine months, don't you? And then watch this. Then take wives for your sons. Oh, no, they've got to grow up. Now I'm here longer. And give your daughters in marriage, which is never going to happen with Kaya, but that's beside the point. That what? That what? They may bear sons and daughters. 
Now my, now I'm not just building houses and li- living in it. I'm not just planting gardens and eating produce. I'm not just getting married and having kids and watching them grow up, but I'm watching them get married and then watching them have kids. Multiply there and do not decrease. The first thing Jeremiah says is live in the city. Live in the city. Put your roots down. Plant. I've got you there for a reason. I sent you there for a purpose. You think Nebuchadnezzar has you there because he wanted to just some, (laughs) I'm going to pull all of God's people into Babylon, into captivity? No, I put you there. I've got you there for a purpose. So build a house and live in it. Plant a garden and eat it. Take a wife, take a husband, have kids, multiply there, do not decrease. Plant your roots in the city. We're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks what it means for us to live in the city and to put our roots down here. Now, here's the second thing Jeremiah says to the nation of Israel, to those in exile and captivity. And this is our theme verse for the whole series. He says, live in the city. And number two, Jeremiah 29, 7, he says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Again, I sent you there. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I want to do one kind of Hebrew word thing here this morning because it's important that we understand what's happening here and then we're going to be done. This is the Hebrew word thing. Jeremiah has said, live in the city. Now he's saying, seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of Babylon where I have placed you. And he repeats that word welfare three times. Welfare, welfare, welfare. Anybody reading a Bible translation that has the word welfare, seek the welfare of the city? Do you have a Bible translation that says that? How about seek the peace of the city? Does anybody have that one? Yeah, yeah. How about seek the prosperity of the city? Does anybody have that one? Yeah, cool, prosperity. Okay, here's, here's what's happening. There's this Old Testament word, this biblical word, and it means God's harmony. It means God's best. It means how God created things. And we don't really have an English word for it. It's a different word. It's a Hebrew word. It's an Old Testament word. And so we do our best with peace and prosperity and welfare. But really what it means is when all things are firing on all cylinders and God's will is being done and his kingdom is coming and everything is good and we're not fighting and no strife and it's God's best and God's prosperity and God's welfare. And here's the Hebrew word repeated three times in Jeremiah 29.7. It's shalom. That's that word. Shalom, in the original language. You seek the shalom of the city. No matter how godless it might be, no matter how pagan it might be, no matter how many symptoms it might be showing of its brokenness and dysfunction, you be a shalom bringer in the city where I have called you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare and its shalom, you will find your shalom. And this word here, Welfare, prosperity, peace, those are human words. Shalom, that's a God word. That's a God-sized goal. And so what God is encouraging, exhorting, commanding even, the exiles in Babylon to do is transform the city. Transform the city. This is not about band-aids. This is not about social work. This is not about... uh, fixing up a playground or working in downtown schools for under-resourced kids. It's not about any of that. It might be about some of that, but this is about city transformation. It's not about addressing symptoms. It's about getting the core, getting at the core of the problem. And the core of the problem is this. Our city needs Jesus real, real, real bad. This is about city transformation. Over the next Two weeks, what we're going to do here in this space 
is talk about for you and me and us as a community and a body what it means to do two things. What does it mean to live in the city? What does that look like? And that's just, not, it's not just, oh, I'm going to buy a house on King Street. That's not how that, that's not what that is. What it means to put roots down, call this place home, and work for the transformation of the city, and ultimately be a body of believers, a community of faith, a church that is for the city, that works on behalf of, that is in support of, that is an agent of shalom, that is a vehicle for God's transforming grace, and that is a voice for Jesus in the greater Toronto area. This is what God has been calling his people to do for now thousands of years, and we're just going to join in the mission that he had for us from before the beginning of time. We have a yearly motto every year. Like I said, this year it's for the city. First year it was um, believing God for great things. Second year it was living the message of grace. And I'm now entering my fourth year of ministry here at Bayview. Again, uh, September 2013 is three years. And, and I'll be honest with you. People tell me, Luke, you, sh- you should get more vulnerable in your sermons. You should get more vulnerable. So here I am in my vulnerable chair um, with my, wait, with my, very vulnerable now, unbuttoned. <laughs> here's, here's, here's vulnerability. My first three years here were hard. I love you very much. I, I love it here. I've fallen in love with the city. I've fallen in love with this church. But we became a church over time that did exactly what the nation of Israel did 27 years ago, 2,700 years ago. We became insulated. We began to abandon the city. We began to get in our Christian cliques and do Christian programs and Christian things. We began to spend all our money on programs for one another. We began to copy culture a little bit here and there. A couple of us have assimilated, but for the most part, we've just kind of retreated, abandoned, and began to criticize. And, and here's, here's, here's the thing. It's hard for me, has been hard for me, because that's not what God designed the church to do. That's not what he designed us to do. It's not what he designed me to do. That's the reason why we work hard to do things like ESL because we want to bless the city, transform the city before the city. That's why Bayview Glen Life Groups have three requirements. Receive life from God, share life together, and bring life to the city because we want to be for the city, a blessing for the city. And this is the transition we're going to make in the coming year. So here's what we're going to do. We've already done one thing this morning that we typically don't do that's shake other people's hands. We're going to do something that's going to make you feel even more uncomfortable than that. Are you ready? Are you excited? (laughs) I'm going to ask you to display physically a commitment this morning, to be for the city. To not just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer also. And not just say, man, Lucas, that was a great message, which I don't even know if you feel that way. It's beside the point. The point is, I learned something today about what God is calling me to in this city, and now I'm going to do it. 
And what I'm going to invite you to do in order to show that here in just a few seconds is just to stand. Not yet. It's just to stand. I know that's not very Canadian. I know Canadians, we don't like to do conspicuous things. But we're going to do it together. I don't ask you to do this stuff very often. But I want us to stand kind of as a show of solidarity in a community and say, I'm making this commitment today to learn what it means to be for the city. I don't know what it means to live in the city yet, transform the city yet, but God, I have been doing these other things. I've been more upset about what happens in here rather than getting upset about what happens out there. I get upset about music volume and whether they play hymns and how low the lights are and what Sunday school classes my children are in. I get upset about the ministry that I think somebody canceled. I get upset about the programs that they don't have for me anymore. Instead of getting upset about the fact that there are 13,000 prostitutes in the greater Toronto area. That there are 12,500 kids that go into a foster care home because there's nowhere else for them to go. That there are 150,000 children living in poverty. And you know what bugs us? Oh, Man, they don't have the lights on as loud as they should, as high as they should. Really? 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 And we tell ourselves that the culture abandoned us. No, we abandoned it. So what we're going to do as a church is live in the city, transform the city, and be for the city this year. Here's my invitation to you this morning. The band's gonna come up. They're gonna lead us in a couple of songs of response. Here's my invitation to you is to bow your head and close your eyes. Let the bowing of your head be a representation of what's going on in your heart. And just in closing your eyes just to block out distractions around you. I wanna talk to two different types of people. One is there are some of you that need to repent. Honestly, like it's not appropriate for me to name names, but there's some that need to repent. You know, you know. And if you're like me at all, which I think that you are, you don't want to admit a mistake. You don't want to admit that you've been arrogant. You don't want to admit that you've been rude. I don't like to admit those things either. So repentance is really hard. So I understand, I get it. But it's time for us as a church to say, God, We have done something and pursued something that isn't your best and your will and your call for us. We've abandoned our city. We've abandoned the lost. We've criticized these symptoms. And really, you want us to be a part of the solution at the very core and transform the city. And you need to repent. Now, there are some of you in the place that have a guilt complex. And you think that the reason we come to church is to feel guilty about stuff and then change. That's not the reason we come to church. We come to church so we can be together as a body. So we can receive life from the only giver of life. So we can encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching when Jesus is going to come back and bring his kingdom. So the last thing I want you to feel this morning as you walk out is guilt. What I want you to feel is a renewed hope and focus and vision that God has you here in this city, in this time and place, to be a transforming agent of his grace, to bring his life, to introduce shalom in your school, in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, 
This is not a time to feel guilty, men and women of God. This is a time to feel hopeful and empowered. You know why? Because two verses after Jeremiah 29, verse 7, God says this, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Plans to use you to transform the city where I've called you into exile. That is our motto this year. That is our aim. That is our guiding rails. That is our goal in each and everything we do to be for this city. So I'm a count to three, and my invitation to you would be to show that, and if you don't want to do that, that's fine, or if you live in some other city and you're like, well, you know, London, Ontario doesn't count, or London, England, for that matter, doesn't count, but I'm going to stand on behalf of that city because that's where God has called me. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. You can stay where you're at, but this is an opportunity for us as a body to say, together, we are going to be for the city this year, obey God's call, and be transforming agents of his grace. On three, I'm going to invite you to stand if you want to make that commitment with me this morning. One, two, three. Let's raise our voices in response and sing, Be Thou My Vision.